covenant yet today? I, I didn't really count them all, but I think there were probably at least 15, if not more, references to the word covenant. Now, I've got to tell you that we don't use the word covenant all that much in our normal, everyday language. In fact, I would wonder when the last time was you actually used that word covenant, other than speaking it in church. There are two places that you will hear it, though, on occasion in church, and one of them is the marriage covenant. If you've ever been to a wedding, there is a marriage covenant. There is a, uh, I guess you'd call it a, a promise or a commitment, a contract. And if you're also here on a communion Sunday, we talk about uh, a covenant, that this is the New Testament, this is the new covenant, this is the new commitment, this is the new promise. Let me tell you about somebody who understands what a covenant is, a commitment. In fact, I would say understands what the marriage covenant is all about. You probably don't know this guy. His name is Tony Toto. He operates a pizza parlor out in Pennsylvania. He has survived five attempts on his life. Every last attempt arranged or carried out by his wife, Frances, or her boyfriends. Twice she arranged for assailants to beat him over the head with baseball bats. On one occasion, she put a trip wire across the basement stairs of their house, hoping that he would trip over it, fall down the steps, and kill himself. Twice she arranged for him to be shot. The first time, she drugged his chicken soup so he'd fall asleep soundly, and he, shot, he was shot in the head. But miraculously, he survived. The second time, he was shot in the chest, but only sustained, quote, minor injuries. Nice picture of a happy couple, huh? Wonderful covenant of marriage. Well, let me tell you something. Even more miraculous than Tony surviving five attempts on his life was his attitude towards his wife once, she found, once he found out that she was responsible for all of this. Tony, who admitted to being a self-confessed ladies' man himself, said that he couldn't hold his wife completely unblameless. Couldn't really blame her for this. But she was arrested, tried, and when she was found guilty and sent to prison for arranging for his murder, guess what Tony did? He took their four children and visited her every week. Every last single week that she was in prison. And when finally she was released from prison, she went back to their little red brick home to resume her married life with Tony. And with his arm around here, this is what Tony said, quote, we're more in love now than ever before. I don't understand why people break up over silly little things. <laughs> now, some of you would have said, I would have violated that covenant the first time she ever tried that with me. See, that's what we think of covenants today. That's what we think about commitment. That's what we think about promises. But you've heard in the readings already today that God made a contract with us. He made a covenant with us. And it started back in the Old Testament times, back where 
haven't read to you before, not just right in Jeremiah, but before. And then, after a period of time, he offered the people a new contract, a new covenant, because this one, he said, was going to be even better than the first one. The old covenant, we've talked about this in past messages, was centered around the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. The new covenant was going to be centered all around Jesus. In Hebrews 8, 6, it says the new covenant is a better covenant because it was founded on better promises. Now, centuries before Jesus ever showed up on the face of this earth, God told his people about this new covenant that he'd made with them. He said, in effect, this is the kind of God I will be for you. And his new covenant that he makes with us is better for at least a couple of reasons. One, the new covenant is not based on law. You know, thou shalt, thou shalt not, that kind of stuff. But rather, it's, it's based on grace. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a moment. Second, that new covenant wasn't made with just one nation living in one little small part of the world. This new covenant was made for every last person, all races, all nations, the entire world. Now, I want you to understand something important. That the fact that God comes out with a brand new covenant with us tells us something about the nature of God. He made this new covenant, this new contract with the human race, even though they couldn't keep the old one. He says in verse 32 of our text today, They broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. Kind of takes you back to that marriage covenant before. God said, I was a husband to them. They were my bride, but they broke that covenant. See, God makes this new covenant with his people in spite of the fact, rather because of the fact, that we're not able to keep the old one. Now today we're going to take a, a closer look at God's commitment, God's covenant, or God's contract, or God's promise with the human race. And in the words that Kevin read to you before from Jeremiah 31, it, it talks about exactly the kind of God that God will be for us. And these are important things, I think, for us to remember as we live out our lives. Here's the very first thing he says. He says, I am a God you can believe in. You know, there's a lot of stuff today that you can't really believe. Uh, I, I do this every once in a while. I'll, I'll open up Fox News and I'll read a headline. And I'll read something about politics. Then what I do is I go over to CNN and read the same story. And then I might go to MSNBC and read the same story, and guess what? They're all different. You don't know who to believe. You don't know what to believe. But God says, I am a God that you can believe in. I mean, Jeremiah says God tells us our relationship with him is a personal matter. The foundation of our relationship with God is not built on our political connection. I mean, you don't have a connection with God because God somehow turns out to be libertarian or Democrat or Republican or whatever. It has nothing to do with racial heritage. You can't say, oh, rats, it wasn't Jesus a Jew. I'm a German. Uh, it has nothing to do except it's built on our faith. And in very much the same way, our relationship to God is not built on church membership. 
It's a personal matter. It's a matter of the heart. And see, the most important thing about this relationship between us and God, as far as God is concerned, is not that we go through certain rituals, you know, follow certain liturgies or follow certain church traditions, not that we were born in a certain family, even not that we go to church, you know, every Sunday. The important thing to God is that we have a personal, heart-deep relationship with Him. And there are a couple of aspects of this heart relationship that we need to talk about. And here's, here's that first aspect. And it's that God has given us an internal compass. An internal compass so that we might know Him personally. It's kind of like a personal GPS. You know, as uh, we head to Angola, Louisiana, later today... Uh, via Natchez, Mississippi, we'll punch that stuff into the GPS and it'll take us where we need to go. That's because some of us are directionally challenged. Some of you would not be able to find home after church without a GPS or somebody else uh, telling you where to go. So God says, you don't really know where to go. I'm going to put an internal compass in you so that you can know me. Verse 33, I will put my law in their minds, and I will write it in their hearts. Now, to a certain extent, everybody's got this internal compass. Everybody's got this internal GPS. We all kind of know right from wrong. I mean, every society, every culture in the 6,000 years of recorded history or so has had a concept of good and evil, right and wrong. And you have an understanding of right and wrong in your life, an understanding that goes kind of beyond uh, cultural mores, laws of society. That's because the law of God is written in your heart. Now, in this new covenant, God takes the internal compass a step further. He gives us the Holy Spirit to live in our heart and to guide us in the way of truth. Now, that's a true GPS. When you've got the Holy Spirit in you, and you're going to follow his leading, you know, that little voice, turn right in a hundred yards, you follow the Holy Spirit, he's going to take you where you need to go. Well, think about what Jesus had to say about the Holy Spirit. John 14, verse 17, you know him, for he lives with you and will be with you. Uh, John 16, 8, when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. John 16, when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you in all the truth. So in this new covenant that God has built for us, God gives us this internal compass so that we may know him personally and have a relationship with him that's based solely on faith. But there's a second aspect of this, of this heart-deep relationship, and it's that God has given us direct access as well. An internal compass, but also direct access. Now, there are still some people today who think that God has this kind of uh, hierarchy of access to him. They somehow think that priests and popes and bishops and preachers somehow live on a higher level and have a better connection to the Almighty. I kind of think sometimes that's why... Some people don't pray, but they'll always call the pastor to pray. It's because the pastor somehow has a, I don't know, a hotline to Jesus. 
Well, you know, my connection to the Almighty is no different than your connection. You know, there are even some religions, there are even some denominations that are built on the idea that you cannot approach God on your own, that you've got to use a mediator in order to get to him. You know, the Catholic Church for many years has always taught that you approach through the Virgin Mary. You gain access to Jesus through his mama. Okay? I'm not sure how you handle that because my Bible says something slightly different. Uh, in 1 Timothy 2.5, it says there is only one mediator between God and man, and that is the man, Christ Jesus. There's only one way to do this. Through Jesus, we've got immediate and direct access to God. See, this access is the same for you, same for me, same for every other person on this planet. When it comes to knowing God, you and I are all on the same level at the foot of the cross. Let me remind you again of verse 34 from Jeremiah. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. Now that verse doesn't say that we don't need Bible teachers or Bible preachers anymore. It's saying that you don't need anyone else. You don't need a preacher. You don't need a priest. You don't need a prophet to dictate to you the details of your relationship to God. Now, as a pastor, uh, it's my job to teach the Bible. But your relationship with God doesn't involve me at all. That's a matter, a personal matter between you and him. It's a matter of the heart. See, he's a God you need to believe in. He's a God that is good to believe in. Now, here's the second part in this passage. He also tells us, I'm a God you can depend on. Uh, in verse 33, he says, I will be their God, they will be my people. You belong to me, I belong to you, and you can count on that forever. Isn't that part of the marriage covenant? Until death parts us, right? Stuck on you and stuck like glue. I think there's an old song like that. Probably. If not, some country singer ought to write one. In fact, in verse 36, it says, I am as likely to reject my people Israel as I am to do away with the laws of nature. Not until the heavens can be measured and the foundations of the earth explored will I consider casting them away forever for their sins. In other words, God's stuck on you. He's stuck like glue. You can depend on God no matter what. And you can depend on him how long? Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Get the idea? When you accept this new covenant... You belong to him. When this covenant relationship is started between you and Jesus at the baptismal font, let's say as a child, his promise is that he will be with you forever. I mean, how many times does it take in the Bible for Jesus to say that, for lo, I am with you always, or never will I leave you or forsake you? You know, when you read the Old Testament, you very quickly see this recurring theme 
And the recurring theme is this. God takes care of his people. Even when they do something really, really stupid, he takes them back and he provides for them. Let me give you just a, a few examples. Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve created perfect, living in a perfect place called the Garden of Eden. What do they do? They sin in the garden. They break that covenant promise relationship with God. But God didn't stop being their God. In fact, the Bible says that he actually made them garments and clothed them. I mean, throughout the Old Testament, God takes care of his people. Remember Joseph? Took care of Joseph even though he was mistreated, sold into slavery by his brothers. And then years later, what does God do? God raises Joseph up to number two in the land of Egypt, you know, vice Pharaoh, whatever they called him. And he saves his own people from starvation. How about Moses? You know, God took care of Moses, saving him from death as an infant, and then years later, using him to take his people out of Egypt. When they got to the Red Sea, he uses uh, Moses to part the Red Sea so they could safely walk through. In the wilderness, you know, he provides his people with manna. He gives them water. He's with them all day and night through this cloud and this fire by night. I say, if, if you work your way through the Old Testament, you see again and again and again how God provides for his people, how God cares for his people. In fact, uh, I'm going to steal this out of my notes for teaching on the Old Testament this week down in prison. Uh, how could you summarize the entire Old Testament? Well, one way would be this. Follow God and he will take care of you. He is a God you can depend on. That's a fairly decent summary of a lot of the Old Testament. Now, but we just don't all sit in the Old Testament all the time. We, are, we sometimes call ourselves New Testament people. Well, in the New Testament, what happens again? Again and again and again, um, we turn all of our problems, all of our concerns, all of our cares over to God. Here's a few passages. 1 Peter 5, verse 7. Peter says what? Cast all your cares upon him, or anxiety, because he cares for you. Here's another one. Paul in Philippians 4, 19. My God will meet all, get that word, all, your needs, according, and by the way, it's needs, it doesn't say greeds, will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Or look what Jesus says, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, what you will wear, consider the ravens, God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than a bird? I think about that every once in a while, we've got these big windows over at the parsonage, and I don't know, for some reason they like to, birds like to fly in them. Oh. You know, you get a stiff bird out on your patio, and you think, well, you know, God knows about them. God took care of them up to that point. Uh, I'm a little bit more important than a bird. Uh, he says, God clothes the grass of the field. How much more will he clothe you? See, in your darkest hour, your weakest moments, your most desperate times, you can depend on God. Here's the third thing he says. I am a God you can turn to. Now, when you come to the end of yourself, when you've got nowhere else to turn to, you can turn to God. You ever been there? You kind of got to the end of your rope, 
tied a knot in it, or hanging on, and feel like you're swinging over the fires of whatever. But when you get to that point, you can turn to God. Now, I tell you that it's a whole lot better to start turning to God before you get to the bottom of the rope. See, if guilt is eating you up, I don't know whether that's you, but if some form of guilt is eating you up, or if there's some regrets that are holding you back, you can turn to God. If you can't find peace within yourself, or if you can't find rest anywhere in your life, you can turn to God. If you have failed once, or twice, or a thousand times, you can turn to God. And guess what? He will never turn away. You will never burn your bridge with God. Verse 34 says, For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Now, if you take a look at these words like wickedness and sin, I, I like looking these up in the original language because there are different words for sin and, and things. And, you know, sin basically, the Greek word is amartia, it means to miss the mark. And it's like if you ever take archery in high school, I used to teach archery when I was a PE teacher in high school. You know, you put out those straw things and teach them how to string their bow and everything. And you tell them how to stand and you get the thing out there and you pull. And if they don't hit the bullseye, they have sinned. They have missed the mark. You know the most dangerous place for a teacher to stand? You know, I should tell you, you know where the safest place is for a teacher to stand in archery class? In front of the target. If you don't believe that, I had a girl one time, I was standing behind her, and she actually shot me in the chest with the arrow. It just kind of tumbled right over her head and hit me. Like I said, wait a minute, I'm going to go stand down by the target. Wickedness is another word for sin. We don't use that word very much. Parents, when's the last time you referred to your child as a wicked little dude? Wicked means crooked like a snake. Devious, cunning, conniving. And so you've got two different levels of sin here. He says, but I will forgive your deviousness, your dark side, your snakiness. And I will remember no more the times when you missed the mark. I mean, so God's got them all covered. We've got words like trespass, which means you just kind of end up in the wrong place at the wrong time. This is the new covenant that God's made with you and me, with all of us. He sent his son into the world, John 3, if you get after John 3, 16, he said, I sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but to save it. When Jesus begins his ministry on earth, he heads to where? Bethany beyond the Jordan. And as he is walking down to the Jordan, John the Baptist sees him, points at him, and what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See, that's what Jesus did. Jesus paid the price for your sin. When he died on the cross, the sins of the entire world, past, present, future, were all piled on his shoulders, and he paid for them. That's why Jesus says as he dies, it is finished. The Greek word, tetelestai. It's an accounting term that means paid in full. That's what that means. John says he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins 
and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. John also said something. You know this verse. Many of you probably got it memorized. You know, 1 John 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify or cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. All I'm saying, friends, is when you fail, you may not have anybody human to turn to, but when you fail, there's always a God you can turn to. God has promised to forgive you. He has promised to remember your sins no more. He has made a commitment to this world. He has made a covenant with this world. He has made a contract with this world. He has made a promise to this world. He's made a promise to you and me. And in this covenant, he makes himself available to you. 24-7, 365, throughout all eternity, God is there. Anytime you ever find yourself saying, oh, God's not listening to me. No, he's listening to you. Maybe he's just not ready to give you an answer quite yet, but he's there. He's always there. In this covenant, he's also a God you can believe in. You can believe in him from the depths of your heart. Complete trust, utter trust in him. He is a God you can depend on. God will honestly take care of you. I remember visiting someone one time who had just lost a loved one, who had just died. And I said, well, this is really kind of a loss, isn't it? Something to the effect. And this woman looked at me and she said, you know some Pastor, that was the very best thing that could happen. And it kind of caught me by surprise. Then I suddenly realized what she was saying. You know, sometimes when people are very ill, we pray that they continue to live. When really the very best thing is what? That they would be with the Lord in heaven. Now, we don't like thinking that way. We're not, we're not generally prone to pray that God come and take people. But God will take care of you, even if it means doing what? Taking you to be with him ahead of what we consider to be the right time. He's a God you can turn to. Even when you have no one else to turn to. You know, I always think of the person who came into my office one time and says, Pastor, I've tried everything, so I finally came to you. <laughs> oh, man, has it come to that? You know, I, I mean, they should, you know, even if they tried everything and everything else has failed, God is still the one you can turn to who has the answers. All you really need to do is accept his offer. All you really need to do is, you know, buy into that covenant. If you've never done that, you can do it today. Now, even if you have been a follower of Christ for many years, if you have been a pew warmer for your entire life, this covenant is still the foundation of your relationship with God. It never changes. I mean, we are to believe in him from the heart, we are to depend on him for our daily needs, and we are to turn to him for mercy and forgiveness. His promise is he will always be there. That's God's commitment to you. And may he grant that always, for Jesus' sake. Amen.